Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. My, I've got my settings all screwed up here. I have to hmm. adjust my settings. Should I play a little music? <clears throat> yeah. yeah. You, you have a preference? Setting adjustment music? I can do that. I was at an architectural salvage yard the other day. Of course you were. (laughs) And I was digging through some bins, and uh, there was a whole bin of old old headphones, like you would see you would see in a secretarial pool or a a library. You know, like the headphones we used in in the library. Oh, with the like plasticky, cheap, not very useful padding. Correct. And I was I was digging through these headphones, and I noticed that they had uh, th- written on them in in black pen the name of my childhood elementary school. They said Sunset on them, all of them. And I was looking through them. I was like, Sunset, Sunset. That couldn't be Sunset Elementary. And I I walked up to the to the gal at the counter, and I was like, Are these? Did you guys? do a salvage from an old elementary school and she said oh yeah some elementary school up in shoreline and i realized these were the headphones these were the actual headphones in the library of the elementary school i went to when i was a little kid and lived in seattle wow so i bought them all (laughs) and now i have all of these headphones you you might have uh, watched uh, the world at war with those on your head absolutely i watched microfiche I watched film strips. I watched who knows what. I, I I probably took French lessons. Anyway, so I bought these headphones because I was so excited to have the you know to have the real a real artifact of that of that school. And of course, they're terrible headphones. There, it's no reason that that you know the Chinese beat us to the moon. You can't even. <laughs> we were listening to stuff on these terrible tinny headphones. Well, the, the the fidelity is, uh, you know, not completely up to snuff. You know, they're probably not what you call reference headphones, right? No, in fact, they are barely. I mean, it's um, it's like uh, it feels like the sound has to go through a tiny, tiny pinhole <laughs> to come out in into your ear area. So, no, they're terrible. But but I love them. I have a bunch of them too. But if about uh, if you could say how about how many did you uh, pick up? Oh, I don't know. A bag. How much is in a bag? A bag, oh, for the... uh, a bag is uh, 5 to 22. Yeah, right. So between 5 and 22. Met- metric or imperial? <laughs> got an imperial <laughs> bag. It's an imperial bag. <laughs> well, I don't want to, you know, hate, you know me, I hate to state the obvious, but it seems clear enough to me that uh, you should start a school. I have been wanting to start a school my whole adult life. <laughs> you got the headphones. I feel like that's what, that's what we've done here, Merlin, with Roderick on the line. We have started a school. A kind of, it's it's like um, it's one of those internet colleges. Well, you know me, and I don't like to restate the uh, the stating of the obvious. But <laughs> uh, oh, the University of Phoenix, really? <laughs> like, I, think, I think this is this. Is, we should be just as accredited as the University of Phoenix. I got a uh, I got a, a diploma in uh, some uh, Bazooka Joe from uh, Phoenix. <laughs> I'm technically an electrical uh, electrician now. Excuse me, an electrical my... electrician. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's got a typo on it. They meant to say engineer. <laughs> John, um, you know, uh, sorry, I don't want to be too on the nose, but for the love of Christ, you have to start a school. And, you know, really in, in deference or in honor of uh, of your own sunset uh, time, you yeah. know, and just for what it's worth, I don't make it creepy, but, you know, I 
the neighborhood I live in is called the Sunset. So you could have a satellite location here. Mm, well, you call could, it Sunset. Yeah, I mean, it's a costly place to build anything, but I, you know, I think once you've uh, got the sunk cost of the headphones taken care of, the kids <laughs> are just going to show up. People, John, people are, I, I say this uh, with Rue because of the uh, fact that we're going through this right now, but it's a real pain in the butt to get into a school. It's a yeah. huge pain in the butt to get into a good school, and it's an extreme rarity to get into a John Roderick school. Well, I feel like if I named it Sunset University, um, you know, that it's already sort of like very inviting to a, to an older demographic, right? Hmm. It's like, it's, these are the sunset years of your education. Come to sunset university where the chairs are comfortable and the headphones are like you had in elementary school. That's a little long, but, <laughs> be, but, but you know, you ever, uh, you ever get a, get a, a pizza and it says on the box, uh, you've tried the rest, now try the best. Mm-hmm. Of course, every pizza box says that. It's mm-hmm. not probably entirely true. But I mean, again, I, I don't think you have to be the best pizza place in order to order those boxes. And by the same token, let's be honest, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not the 19th century. I think you can literally call yourself a university without any, uh, fear of, uh, you know, contradiction. Right. Anybody right. can be a university. It's like being a doctor. You just say it. Yeah. Well, and it's like, uh, it's like they say about when you and your friend, uh, meet a bear on the trail, mm-hmm. you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just right. have to be faster than your friend. That's a great joke. I love that joke. It's true. It's and, a, that, and, that, and that would be the motto of sunset university. We'd have to translate it into Latin. Okay. You don't uh, have to be faster than the bear. Fasterus cum bear. You just have to be faster than the bear. <laughs> But here's what I like, and this is why I bring up pizza, is because what you're really saying is you've tried the rest. Now, right. now try the, the, right. the literally the final school you go to. It's the sunset. It's the last school you need. You've been to you've been to a lot of colleges, presumably. If you're listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. you have either been to a lot of colleges, and none of them have met your needs, or you haven't been to any colleges. You're very curious about them. Yeah, you you have the kind of non job where you could listen to an hour and a half of, of help from somebody you've never met. I meet a lot of people who haven't been to college. Good. You know, they say that, that, that everybody's been to college now, but I meet people all the time that have never been to college. It's very costly, John. College is costly. It's not, it's not worth anything. Hmm. No, I met I, some I Australians the other day. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please. Continue. I met, I'm, I met an, uh, an Australian couple who were traveling in America, and they had two teenage daughters. Well, one was a teenager, 13, and the other was nine. Neither kid had ever been to a school. Hmm. They just were educated by their parents and traveled around together. And they weren't even hippies. They were a little bit punk. Oh, I see. They, they, had, uh, they, had, they, were, they were all wearing, the entire family, mom, dad, and both daughters were wearing Doc Martens. Hmm. Which is, hmm, I don't well, know. That's, that's, that's a start. If I know, uh, if I know uh, what your special things are, that, that, that's a start. And, uh, you, know, you know, this isn't, that wouldn't necessarily be one of those, we keep them out of the schools because of the menace of creationism. They might actually be doing it, but it's not that hard to do a better job than a school right now, which is all the more reason for you to start one. It's an yeah. opportunity. You know, Apple says, hey, you know, you've never really loved your phone before. Let's, let's give you something that you can really use. And in this case, maybe the reason that you've uh, stayed out of school, as you say, it's never met your needs or your, or your children's needs. You know, you know what they need. You, you yeah. should be, you should be the one that's helping them matriculate. I was having another time travel dream the other day, except in this case, I time traveled back to high school, but I looked like I was in high school. I time traveled back into my high school body. And I was trying to think if I would do a better job than I did, or if I would fuck it up even worse. Hmm. 
I, you, I, the jury's I, still out. I, mm, I have lots of dreams. <sighs> I only really dream about five things. Uh, and one of them is a kind of time travel. I, in dreams, I only ever go to uh, shopping malls, high school, my college, church camp, and um, and I, did I mention the mall? I go to the mall. Wait, those are those are the five dreams, or that is one kind of dream, time travel dream, and you go. I to don't five remember them that places. well. And the Ringling Museum in Sarasota. That's the only that's the only places I go in dreams, and it's usually a, like a dark ride at Disney World. Hmm. You know, like it's a small world, but with uh, you know, Rubenesque women paintings Mm -hmm. um but time travel features heavily a dream i've had a lot yes naked yes flying but also the the precisely the dream you described which is going back to school but like being me now and i'm just gonna tell you for myself the ones i can remember i do equally as poorly because i'm essentially the same person it's just a a little heavier with different pants yeah i think i think i would uh i think i'd probably get more tail than i did in high school because because in all honesty this may this may shock you, but I got zero tail in high school. I find that so hard to believe. Zero, even with Kelly. That you know, our our um, our she's, she's a doctor now, so we should probably you know steer around that. Well, no, she's a doctor now, so she knows. Presumably, now she knows about the human anatomy. Mm-hmm. She's had two kids, mm. but you know, at the time, at the time, I think I had this sense that good kids didn't go too far. Mm-hmm. I was very, you know, I was very governed. You said you said on, on previous occasions. We, I think, we've agreed that we felt we both felt put off by the people who were getting tail, whether that was men, women, or or otherwise. We felt we felt I felt sort of betrayed, mm-hmm. by, betrayed by people exactly. who were able to smoke pot and finger bang. I never I never had access to that, and now today I understand that people. Let's be honest, want to be finger banged. Oh there God. aren't that many. There aren't that many people who don't want a little bit of finger banging, and I know that. I don't have to make it weird, but now I know that we've talk, again something yeah. we've discussed is that that and for me going to college just made it worse. That feeling I just described. Then it then it had some kind of like brassy patina of political correctness to it, and you know I would do finger banging, but I would feel bad about it sometimes. You know, but when I first went to college, all that the the only difference between college and high school is that uh, that girls were wearing a lot more perfume they were they were using they, there was a there was a lot there was a thick layer of of obsession in the air everywhere you felt like I there went. was more in college more perfume in college my for sure. my my girlfriend as you know i'm a serial monogamist yeah. my first girlfriend who became my first college girlfriend uh during the first week of school big calvin klein obsession user it's obsession. still Absolutely. It's still, when I smell that, and thank God people don't wear it so much anymore. Of course, I have a great sense memory of it, like listening to the cars and finger banging. But, right. you know, uh, Candio, um, she had one of those really nice jam boxes that could play a cassette on repeat. And oh, back, back then, back then, you know, I, girl. I, yeah, I didn't even need to drink a lot of water and rest then. <laughs> I, 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 I went to a Catholic school for the first two years of college, as you know. Mm-hmm. And really, Catholic school, Catholic universities are a place where people really really drink a lot and have a lot of reckless sex with one another because it's it's uh, it's like when amish kids go get kicked out of the of their amish town rumspringen and so it's it's definitely it's what it's called. The, i think that's what it's, it's called yeah it's the catholic rumspringen uh they go to college <laughs> and then by i think the expectation is by junior year you will have f- found the person that you want to marry but that first two years, it's just there. People are just throwing down gin and tonic, and then, and then, and then hooking up 
it's basically like hooking up. If you took, if you had a, if you had a frog cannon, if you had, let's say you had two frog cannons, <laughs> and they a were, sex thing, and they were aimed at each other. No, it's a cannon that shoots frogs. <laughs> okay, and and they and they were, but they, but it shoots like multiple frogs at once. Right? It's a semi-automatic like, weapon. No, no, it's not, they're not. It's not like da 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 da. It's like a blunderbuss of frogs. Oh, like a, a double double-barreled frog. Like cannon. A, well, except you're shooting you're shooting like shotgun frogs. So oh, it's I, let's say you can shoot twenty-five frogs out of this cannon, <laughs> and you have two of those pointing at each other. They're kind of not pointing directly at each other; they're pointed up in the air, but in opposite ways. And you're just shooting twenty-five frogs at a time in, in two different directions. Some of those frogs are going to hit. And that is what sex at a Catholic university is like. It's also a lot like the Cold War. Hmm. Don't you think? I mean, don't you, you think mean, in you some mean my ways? Frog I don't... analogy is like the Cold War? Mm, not, well, I mean, the elements of it, not the actual, you know, uh, extant analogy. I don't want to derail you, but I mean, that seems a lot like the Cold War. You point a frog cannon, we got a frog cannon, we get a bigger frog cannon. Big, yeah, bigger but, and bigger frog cannons. Pretty soon the, we go to Georgetown. Thing. You're the one who runs a school, uh, but but it seems to me that that if you're one of those people, and don't you get a lot of old Catholics running the school? Don't you get a lot of ah, like guys in their 60s? Like it seems to me that if you've got that continuity of uh, care over many many years, they know that there's some frog cannons being shot over the. Uh, well, it was Catholic explained to have. me when I first arrived at Gonzaga University, where I spent my first two years of college, or my first year and a half before I was asked to, <laughs> asked to depart. Um, it was explained to me that there are two types of Jesuits and the one type of Jesuits, the one type of Jesuit is the, uh, is the intel, the hyper intellectual homosexual man who is either, who was either put into the priesthood by, you know, by their terrified parents or was like, he had an older brother who was going to inherit the family business and he ends up, you know, going into the priesthood. It's, you know, it's the very traditional societies. Hmm. Uh, the other half of the Jesuits, or the other percent, I don't know if it's a half, it seemed like it was about half. So half of my professors were incredibly smart, clearly gay priests who wanted to, who just lived this incredibly like diverse intellectual life. The other half of the Jesuits were former jocks, like football players and like just jocks that came up in Catholic school athletic programs, basket, famous basketball players or whatever. And when their athletic career was over, they just sort of were brought, were kept in the church family, brought back in and given a life in the Jesuitical order. So, for instance, the president of the university while I was there, everybody on campus recognized that he was from the jock side of the Jesuits. And nobody had any respect for him as a as a thinker, but he was a glad hander and a and a backslapper and a and a fundraiser, and you know and so all the all the intellectual like queer Jesuits were very contemptuous of of that side of the the order. Mm -hmm. I never understood it because it seemed like to become a Jesuit it took years and years and years of study and and whatnot. But then as time went on, I realized it does take years of study, but there's only one book. The Bible? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you study that. It does, even, if you're, even if you're like a, a dumb basketball kicker, right. you can, over the course of five years, you know. It's you not like you're expected to understand Chaucer like Anne James Joyce. You can, spend a, you can spend a lot of time getting good at that one thing. 
Yeah, you just memorize the one book, and you seem like I mean, it's uh, it's 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 true of it's true of all religion. You memorize one book, and then when any, when anybody says anything to you, you just say something out of the book, and it seems like you're a genius, a hmm. saint. Anyway, we're gonna have to figure out at Sunset University what our equivalent, like demographic split is or our equivalent sort of professorial we need i feel like i feel like any university needs tension between the x professors and Mm -hmm. the y professors you need uh mccartney's and lennon's we need mccartney's and lennon's right on on their own they'll do stuff but but when you combine uh the jocks and the and the scholars Mm -hmm. let's say it's a euphemism when you get the jocks and the scholars working together i mean it's like you know you need two hands I feel like I feel like one side of Sunset University should be prissy Bay Area software people <laughs> who who are really uncomfortable when we start to you know when we when we go off book but but who are secretly titillated by it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then that's, uh, a, the that's other... a great way to be. You you you'll pick up a lot of interesting stuff with that attitude. <laughs> I think in my experience, yeah. And then the other half of the professors should be like, um, you know, oh, you're like, talking about, you're talking about the faculty. I'm talking about the faculty. Oh, these would be like, actually like literally separate wings, separate wings the, the, the prissy, the prissy Bay area software designers who, who secretly, you know, get a, get a chubby when, when mm-hmm. the rules get broken, mm-hmm. but they can't, they can't really admit it. And then the other half are like wild man Fisher types who, uh, who probably have never been to college themselves, but you know, we're, you know, for a, for a while we're living in a tree outside of Jackson hole. And then they, you know, they hitchhiked down to Mexico and they, they you know, built a stone fortress out of broken seashells. And then they, you know, were a whitewater river rafting guide, guys like that. Mm-hmm. I can lay my hands on some guys like that. And if I may say, uh, they, they represent at least two of the many facets of, of your personality, because you're, you are a very learned McCartney in many ways. And on the other hand, I won't, won't call you a jock, but, but you're certainly the kind of man that would travel in a fugue state. I, and, and having those together, would they be decorated differently, the two wings? Would they reflect the, uh, the interests of the faculty and well, the, no, the sensibilities? The thing. You, have to then, you have to put the two wings together, and you have to pretend that everybody's the same. Same chairs, same chalkboard. Exactly, hmm. because without that, if if the wings were just divided, then they would be at war with one another, or or they would be like openly, they would be openly hostile. To well, one it's like the tyranny of public restrooms, right? You got hmm. an icon on the door. Do you have a weenus? Do you not have a weenus? Here, here, here's your here's your restroom. And in this case, it's really it's like one large unisex bathroom where you're just gonna have to go in there and wonder who was there before you. Right. That's pretty exactly. good. Well, and I don't want to get back swing back to to finger banging too fast, but you know, girls mm. have a weenus too. It's just a, it's much, much That's smaller. Good point. It's a, it's an onboard. Inside. It's onboard weenus. Yeah. Retractable hmm. weenus. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a terrific idea in ways that I, I'm sure you understand. I mean, you obviously you have so much to share with people and if anything, it's just that you really need, you need the platform for that. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the sort of monetary model would be. You could probably get okay. some of those friends of yours to, to write some grants or some maybe retired senators who would want to have their name on an arch or something. I mean, you, well, I, you, you've walked in the corridors of power. You know a lot of people. You know, you know the mayor there. You know the rock and roll county administrator. You know a lot of people that— Yeah, but none of those people have any money. They can accredit us. Yes, but the, you know, it's like Facebook, friend of a friend. They could go and talk to people in the uh, deeper uh, corridors of power 
who well, have I've access been, to I've been monies. going on this uh, I've been I've been starting this whisper campaign for months uh suggesting that I be appointed to the boards of directors of some hot up and coming software company. <laughs> And I've gotten I've gotten a few nibbles. Yeah, but, I don't think but, that counts as a whisper. But but nobody's <laughs> nobody's pulled the trigger yet. I feel like I, you know these are my prime scimitar wielding years. John, this is this is a, this is a huge part of the problem. It's like going. It's like you know when I'm when I'm counseling my kids and they're worried wondering about like how to make their job better. And they're all like, should I should I I want better stuff? Should I ask for a raise? I'm like, no, Wait, you're, you should. You're go. counseling your kids. You know the uh, you know the youngsters, the the listeners, and <laughs> you, and my thing oh, is like, are you talking about Merlin's kids? <laughs> yeah, I, I do a telethon every year. <laughs> I yell at people. I have a I'm like a I'm like a Janus of help. I didn't realize that you that you that you thought of your listeners as your kids. That's really sweet. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to I don't want to be you know condescending, but I think of them as Merlin's kids in a lot of ways. I like that. Mm-hmm. I come out and make goofy faces and make kind of a, a fruity <laughs> hand gesture where my my hands all limp. Uh-huh. Uh, the, and you pour some vinegar and some baking powder. Even. <laughs> but <clears throat> um, hmm, boy, there's a lot. I got a lot of cards here. The um, but here's the thing. So here's the problem with these suckers. And this is true. This is true in schools. You know it's true in work. And for the love of Christ, you've taught us that this is the case in rock. Is yeah. that is that there are people out there who are waiting for their benediction. They're waiting for their bazooka Joe that's going to tell them that they're an electrical electrician. And what they never think to do is go out and just get it. And I'm not even talking about like follow your dreams. I'm talking about you go out and do that thing. You're you're not going to get you're not going to get the kind of position where you wield power by asking for it. And in, 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 in this instance, I, this is why I think you showing up in a bathrobe and a scimitar at, literally at the meeting is going, to ha- right. is going to be much more impactful than saying, may I have permission to bring a scimitar into your building? You're absolutely right. I, I, you know, th- this, uh, it's not, this, it's not, it's not, I don't mean to give you a note here. I'm just saying that you understand as a man, a man, a man of power that, that you don't go in and ask to be empowered. It's true. It's true. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, Eddie Murphy recorded Raw when he was 21 years old, Ugh. 20 even. And we are still listening to and debating and arguing about music that the Beatles made when they were similar, same age. Mm-hmm. And like I've said before, I encounter sometimes 20, 21 year olds who are fully adult, fully They are fully actualized. They do not appear to be wrestling with um, how do I how do I keep from crying in public? They do not seem to be wrestling with like... (laughs) It's because they got a tumbler. Put another tumbler. (laughs) Like, it took me years to understand that any given meal that you eat out in a restaurant with a group of other people... You should always, A, put in more money than you owe, and B, potentially, you should just buy the dinner. Oh, John. You should just buy the dinner. Uh, this is this is core curriculum. I mean, this should be in the freaking orientation. I, I, I've told you about this, but when we would go out to eat, uh, I think I told you this, when I had my real job back in Florida, and we go out to eat, go to some some like sushi barbecue place or whatever, there's always like a couple guys who, that Bill would come, and they'd be on meh, 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 and they take out their, you know, Hewlett Packard calculator and want to like break it down and like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Who who had uh, more edamame or whatever. Yeah. And, and I would be like, look. This is back when I took work seriously. I would say, look, guys, let's just either split it N ways 
Or please, I cannot spend my 20s listening to you guys argue over a $6 tab. Hand me the bill. I will pay it. We will never discuss it again. And, yeah. and you move on. You know, and, and the thing is, you go to a party, don't ask. Don't ask if you should bring ice. Always bring ice. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, well, don't ask if you should uh, take out the trash. Don't worry. Grab the trash. You can find the trash cans. They're either in the garage or more likely outside. You still see 40-year-olds. The bill comes and they are... You know, they're looking at this bill on the table like it contains some hieroglyphic information that they're afraid, you know, they're, gonna, they're afraid it's going to get translated by the wrong scientist. And, and you know, we're going to, instead of, uh, instead of animating the good God, we're going to animate the bad God. Oh, and, you grabbed the, uh, the Abby Normal brain. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, and this, you know, this, this little piece of paper that is telling everybody that they owe 20, somewhere between 21 and $27 each mm-hmm. is vibrating on the table in you know and some people some people are actually levitating it with their anxiety and it's like you know 27 bucks round you know around 30 put just in, just I, I would put in $40 <laughs> just throw the money down and go on with your life and it's this it that that kind of anxiety about money was a thing that I walked into adulthood with I walked into being a 21 year old mm-hmm. with this feeling this this hyper consciousness that I didn't want to get shortchanged I, that and 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 money seemed to be the the, the language that human beings used to determine like who was getting over on who. And so I, sp- I, I wasted so many years trying to make sure that I didn't get, I didn't get shortchanged 30 cents when all along the simple wisdom that you should, you should paper the, 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 the path in front of you with your gratuities, you should put your money to work in, I mean, your number, the number one usefulness of money is to make your anxiety about money go away. Like, here it is. Here's, here's $40. I, I, like you say, I never want to speak of this again. And, and learning that was, a, was this, you know, this turning point for me, but it came too late to, to have that information when I was 20, 21 years old. To just free up my spirit so that I was not walking around all the time. I mean, I, I would go, I would, I would show up in a town, the rain would be pouring down. I would be soaked to the skin. It would be 11 o'clock at night. I would be in Spain and I would see this, you know, little, little sign, pension. And I would walk up three flights of stairs. And I would knock on the door and the little Spanish woman would open the door and she would go, see? And I would say, you know, do you have a chambre? <laughs> El, El Casa de Chambre? Por favor? Don't be a Casa del Pepe. <laughs> and, uh, and she would say, you know, yes, it's uh, 1,500 pesetas or something like that. And I would have it in my mind that a room was... So the room should be thirteen hundred pesetas or thirteen thousand pesetas or whatever, and I would and I would try and haggle with her, but I was a bad haggler, and she would say, "No, sorry, it's that's the price. It's it's eleven o'clock at night, and you're standing in the hallway here, dripping wet, and it's this much money." 
And I would say, well, no then. And turn around and walk the five flights back down into the rainy night. And sometimes walk around the town for another two hours. <laughs> but but Look, you but you won. <laughs> but I won, you know. And I'm looking for this magic room that that was going to save me two dollars. And sometimes the great those the the greatest nights of my life were when I ended up back at that woman's door two hours later, ringing the buzzer and she wouldn't answer. Uh, and all because uh, all because I was I was imagining that it. That that the two dollars symbolized savvy. The two dollars symbolized that I was um, that that I was a I was a knowledgeable person who wasn't being who wasn't being rooked by this seventy year old Spanish woman that was renting out a room in her house. You know that I was that that I was wise, and in fact, I was a fool. And when I when I when I meet somebody who never had that burden, who was just by virtue of how they were raised, or by virtue of the the grade of milk that their mother used in their craft macaroni and cheese, they came into the world with you know either more generosity of spirit or less confusion about what constituted wisdom. <sighs> this is the problem. This is part of the problem with matriculating young students in Sunset University is mm-hmm. that I'm afraid the older students would be distracted by their envy and resentment as the young people who are, who were so much better at this just began their lives of like graceful kind of progress through time and all of us old grouches. Yeah, but I mean, also, you should give yourself credit. It's also kind of a wax on, wax off situation where we have to, we should, we may need to teach you something that you can get your head around before we teach you what we just taught you. Hmm. I I think that happens a lot. I mean, in the case Mm -hmm. of my kid, when like a year or two ago, whenever she first started going to soccer, well, the real goal of soccer is to show up. First of all, mm-hmm. and then to even Have if you some go, oranges at halftime, you get your orange slices. You could, uh, but but you know, I mean, honestly, it's this is one the one of the few things where I will seed the whole like learning to sit still and understand that you're part of a, a team thing. You know, yeah. I, I I think you can take that too far if you take it all the way to your senior year of college. But but <laughs> sometimes sometimes that's what it takes, and and you will be a stronger charactered person out of that. Yeah. And to your point about the money. Uh, and this is in some ways very related to the Chinese ladies at Walgreens arguing over expired coupons. For yeah. some people, as you know, and I think sometimes this is true for you, it's not a question of the dollars and cents. It's a question of what we agreed to. So it seems to me that if you show up at that place, if you went today, you would you would be there like a gentleman. And you'd say, well, I'm going to give you uh, – you, know, you want 35,000 uh, piastres for this. Well, I don't know if the money is there, but you uh, and you you could do this much, and they say no, and you walk away again, like like a gentleman. Now, in the case of going to the Chicken Fingers place in Tallahassee in 1993, what troubled me was the ones who were the biggest dickholes about the tab were the PhDs, were the yeah. people that that at the time were making three times as much money as I did, uh, and and I think what it comes down to in some ways is that. There are yes, there's certainly a lot of personality flaws in play here. One of them is that money makes it easy to understand where you stand. 
And so if somebody is trying to get more of your money or really any of your money and you hold that dear, even if you've got the money, I can certainly understand that. You don't get rich by spending money. I understand that. But but at the same time, like you're right, it's a certain generosity of spirit and it's a certain like getting outside of your own stupid head and understanding that that I am not going to be able to get back and finishing summarizing this goddamn deposition if you sit here and argue over a $4 chicken finger bill. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like to yeah, me, that, well, that's what the I, school could do is, is help people understand eventually once they're ready to accept it, there's a lot more to it. I would, I would even argue that you do get rich spending money. That well, is, that was a little I mean, reductive. But you know what I mean? Like that is precisely how you become a person that, I mean, I, w- without getting too like, uh, Lucy goosey uh, woo woo about mm. how money is made. I know that the the fashion now in America, I think that maybe even the fashion worldwide is to think in certain quarters that making money and being a success in business is a woo woo proposition. That if your if your Buddhism is correct and your 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 spirit is open and your your um, chakras are aligned, <laughs> that money is going to fall from the heavens. And I and I I feel like that is a kind of mind rape that i that i hate with every with every uh it really makes you small it makes you such a scimitar every emotional scimitar every scimitar in your bathroom it makes it makes you uh, a a very small person i guess but i do believe i do believe that spending money freely and that being generous rather tipping bellman and the guy that opens the door for your taxi you know handing him some money even though even though it is clear to all parties involved that he has not performed very much of a service opening the door for you is not a thing that that doesn't that that does not cost a dollar except it does cost a dollar because that is what we have agreed he opened the door for you you hand him a dollar that is the that is part of the social contract and to preserve that dollar for yourself is to live in a world where you are not fully embracing the social contract and therefore not going to prosper by definition. You know, the, the learning that lesson, that money, that a lot of it, that money is fake. Money is absolutely yeah. fake. And to, to treat it like it's real and to preserve it like it matters is to miss the point of it entirely. And it, that is not to say that you should be that you should be a uh, like wanton with it. You should count it and you should know what it represents. But you, it, it's also, it is just a symbolic thing. And at the last five years of my life, I have, I have been living in this weird relationship to money where all of a sudden I have a bunch of it and then I live off of it for a long time. And then I have, then all of a sudden I have more. And every time I have a bunch of it, I think, I'm made in the shade. I'm going to keep having, I'm going to keep getting big bunches of money like this. Money's going to keep arriving in bales and I'm just going to, I should go out and buy myself like a, a really useless watch or <laughs> electric car. And then, uh, and then I, you know, I live off of this bale. I'm like the, I'm the horse that comes into the barn and nibbles at the end of his bale for a couple of years. And then the money's gone and I'm, and if I, if I succumb to the feeling of like, oh, the money's gone, I used it all up, I blew it, I blew my, my big nest egg, you know, I can get into a real panic. But then 
then it just then then uh, all of a sudden the door opens and another bail comes in and i just have realized oh money is totally fake and and the this business i think when people work for a paycheck that comes very regularly and there's a there's a real clear correlation between i worked 40 hours 40 hours is worth x dollars here come the dollars right and and so it's so money and time become very real feeling and it seems like if i stop working for a moment the money will dry up there will never be more or i have to go find another place like this where i work 40 hours and get you know that money and time are so inextricably tied and and i i have just realized that money is just this it's it is absolutely just a handful of seashells <laughs> And it is not the point. It is not the thing to guard. It is not the thing to treasure. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I never do anything anymore. I just got the bail. At, you got your I big just, bail on I the bar. Just, well, I just I nibble, just nibble on your bail. I sit in sit in the front window of my house with my you know my elbows folded on the on the uh, the windowsill, looking down the street for the truck that's going to back up with the money bail. Every day it doesn't come. Well, it's 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 easy to to seem or or sound careless by by saying something like that. But I happen to agree. Uh, I think with a lot of that, and one of the things is that when you've got, let's say you've gotten into a position where you get a job and you're grateful to have a job or any kind of ongoing work, it, you know, it's a kind of conditioning where it's been made clear to you that this is the bar, and when you hit it, the pellet comes out. Right, and if you start doing that for long enough, regardless of what it is, I mean that could that could be beer too, but whatever it is, when you hit the the bar, the pellet comes out. You start, and then you start looking forward to you've hit the bar a certain number of times, and a certain number of pellets have come out. That's it's going to cause a lot of anxiety for you to think about a world where you miss a couple pellets. Right, um, and I, I, that, I'm not trying to re- reduce that because every everybody you know has what they need. Uh, you know, she should get what they need. But but you're right. You lose track of the fact that this is an abstraction, and that this isn't the only way. Um, it's not the only way you could get it. It's not like you can just sit around and wait for bales to show up. But you know, the nature of what you do, you would have to be able to tolerate that uh, feast and more feast, and then occasionally pseudo famine for a while. Because you've got the confidence to know that, like, here, let me put it this way. And I don't, this, this might be too high level, but I think, um, uh, the fact that you need money a lot or need money a little has very little to do with what's happening in the rest of the universe. Yeah. And, and because of our own heuristics and hangups, it's really easy to think that the more I need this money, the more likely I, like, I will do anything to get it. But the the funny thing is, this sounds so slack or like some kind of a self-help thing, but like, well, the truth is like, you know, if it's going to be something where now you got to drive four hours round trip every day and do dry cleaning and have a job that you hate, well, yeah, you got a bar and maybe you've got a pellet, but in some ways that makes you even more enslaved to that same concept instead of going, it's worth it for me to find something that has a bar that I like because I, well, I can get pellets anywhere. We get into this bar and pellet. Uh, situation and we forget that we are we are actually natively made to eat grass in the field (laughs) like the pellet is not our natural reward you know the pellet and 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 again we don't want to i don't want to be too woo woo either but 
it, it is very, very hard. You, you, you get so conditioned to the bar and pellet that you will be, you, you will find yourself in a, in like a, a field of flowers and you will miss the bar. You'll you, not, you, you, it's not just that you'll miss the pellets. You'll miss the bar, the connection, the clear connection you had between this mechanical action and the, and what you, what you considered your sustenance. So I, my, my life has been a, a, a progress of learning to feel like money is not the thing. And you would think when I was 16 years old, I was so consumed with the idea of money as an abstraction and as a real thing. You know, I, can, I collected coins. I collected silver bars. I would go to... <laughs> I would go to those gem and numismatic shows in Alaska where, where guys who were mining raw ore would come and just sell buckets of dirt to each other. And I remember buying raw copper that had been mined out of a vein of copper. It's just like a, it's just like a, like a kind of a crumpled up baseball of just pure copper. And I would buy these things for, um, you know, at the time, a little baseball of copper was only a buck or two. I would buy this metal, not because I ever thought it was going to be worth more money or because I was going to take this, this raw metal and, and trade it with my friends or anything or fashion it into jewelry. I would, I just, the, the idea that the, that we had, we had collectively agreed that this metal was precious, uh, appealed to me. I wanted to own it for myself. And so you would think at 16, 17 years old, I would have made life choices that would have put me in like a closer or a more direct relationship with money, that I would have become a stockbroker or somebody who who sits and just plays with money and invents money, makes money out of nothing. Um, but for whatever reason, I took that 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 love of money in all its many forms and then chose to be a dancer basically <laughs> you know I chose to I chose modern dance as as my expression of my inner life an itinerant entertainment monkey <laughs> yeah like oh great I love money and I am you know and I, I and I worship money like oh, you know you've seen on my wall here I have a sheet of uncut bill two dollar bills one of your I, favorite websites is uh, what your money's worth if you melt it down yeah what's your money worth when it, I mean like what's the melt value I, I have I, I for when I was carrying when I had that chain wallet I used to carry around a kind of born identity style um, safe deposit. You box. You said you had like was, what like six hundred dollars worth of tiny folded up bills. Yeah, tiny folded up twenty dollar bills in all the different <laughs> of all the different nations of the world. What what is that? It's a kind of relationship to money, a crazed like, and and in a lot of ways, it was a simple love. I just had a simple love of it. I just well, it's kind of like a little miniature uh, art museum near your ass. In some ways, right? It's like a little hmm. display. Yeah, a little display and a little game and a little thing I could sit and monkey with with my fingers. But to have chosen a life where, to chosen a life in the arts where money is is seventeen steps down on your maslow hierarchy you know like you are you are so 
you are so it's so long after the show before the smoke clears enough that anybody's even thinking about money again and I, that tension that tension has been in my in my in my whole life you know like mm-hmm. it is it is if if i had gone in to to stockbrokering and had just been interested in solving math problems to create money and then collecting money I may have been a more, that may have been my duck. You know, I may have been in some ways a more realized person, if not as broad a person, I would have been a more, uh, my my life would have had that sort of targeted self-knowledge that, that, that I see in people who like, like my sister realized 15 years after the fact I, and I watched the realization hit her like a ton of bricks. She realized that she had been put on the earth to have been an Olympic skier. And she and she bailed out of skiing because she wanted to smoke pot and hang out with skaters. <laughs> and her all her competitors and all the girls that could never catch her on the ski race mountain ended up being the U.S. women's Olympic team for that era. Like her friends and nemeses went on to be the US ski team and none of and they weren't none of them were medalists but they were the ski team and they did go to the olympics and my sister was a better skier than they were and she realized it many years later like oh shit that was my thing i should have if i had been an olympic skier my whole life would would have this order it would have a context that it's lacking now i'm missing the it's like i'm missing a limb and I, you know, I often wonder whether, whether that uh, that relationship to literally to coinage, you know, to like bags of coins. Right. When I when I was a little kid, and I would get a quarter, because people give quarters to little kids. I don't mm-hmm. know if they still do that, but they sure yeah. used to. I would put it in a shoebox. Have I told you this story? Mm-mm. I had a shoebox. I, I would it, change it for 25 pennies because it made me feel richer. I like that. that, that's, that I like that very much. But I would put this, I would put whatever coin I got, any denomination, I would put it in the shoebox until I had a shoebox that I couldn't, uh, that I could barely lift. I used to keep it on the top shelf of my closet and then I had to keep it under my bed because I couldn't, but I couldn't lift it. And I would, I would, pick this shoebox up and I would I'd put it on the bed. I would I'd close my door and lock my door and I'd go sit on my bed and I would take the money in, <laughs> no. in big handfuls no. and I would pour it over my head. <laughs> you'd, you'd have a little uh, quarter shower. Yeah. I would, I Didn't would it sit. hurt? I loved it. You could really feel the money. I, you could feel the money and I was... I was literally bathing in my wealth, which a shoebox full of quarters is, you know, I know exactly how much it is because I eventually my mom convinced me to take it to the bank, hand it in, and the woman behind the counter gave me a bank book where they had typed $117 in the bank book. And then my my box of quarters was gone, but in its place I had this bank book, which looked like a passport that had this amount of money 
in it and I could take the bank book out and stare at my $117 in this new form, which was, you know, a promise. Was that, was that as satisfying? Different, different, a different kind of thing. It was a different kind of satisfying because I had, because my mom was initiating me into the, into the culture of adults by taking me to the bank. Now I had a bank book. Now I was, you know, now my money had, had joined the big stream and I was part of the big operation. There were so many times in my, in my young life where somebody initiated me into, like when I got my first checkbook, initiated me into this, the big operation, the world of adults who were trading money and stock and, you know, I was fascinated by all of that. I wanted to be a part of it. And, um, and yet there, there was nobody, no, nobody took me all the way. You know, nobody explained maybe the next step beyond having a bank account. And I mean, I, and, and people bought me stock for Christmas when I was, because I was one of those kids. I was I a little hated Alex that. P. I would have hated that so much. I got stock for Christmas and I was thrilled. I would open up the newspaper and I would look for my little penny stocks and you know, the stock, the stock that I had was trading in the 75 cents a share realm. And I had a hundred shares and, and you got to watch that change. I would watch it change and sometimes I'd be up and sometimes I'd be down. You're so but good I, at that. You're so good at, at like at watching and waiting. You're really good at that. Yeah. I like to watch and wait. But the problem is with the stocks and with a lot of things, I watched my stock go up to $1.50 a share and then I watched it plummet to 40 cents a share and then I watched it plummet off the bottom of the of the uh, stock exchange when it fell to two cents a share and then was delisted. And that's why you're angry at politicians now. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, one of the companies I invested in, in like 1980 made some kind of hose that was used on the space shuttle. Hmm. And I thought this is a growing industry. Now that's cool. And, um, and then it turned out you can't really like you, your business isn't going to thrive just making like one hose. Mm, that's a pretty specific vertical market. Yeah, you need to diversify. But you know, I've watched my fortunes go up. I've watched them go down. I am not. I'm a hoarder. You know, that, that's, I'm not that's a what trade. I was, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't want to derail you, but like I I, I think I personally, I mean, I don't think. You should, I'm not saying you feel bad, but like, I think there's an important distinction to be made that at least I have at this point uh, for now, feel like I've learned, I'm not like a successful person by the longest stretch of the imagination, especially money-wise, but uh, when you think about what you described, like somebody going to Wall Street or somebody who's going to be in numismatic or whatever. Like, I think it's important. Uh, did I pronounce that even anywhere near right? Yeah, you know, it was good. Like, think about this breakdown, though. Um, one that I think is interesting and one that's very personally important to me. One is, um, like, think about the aspects of being a one of those people, like you're a banker or you're a um, mergers and acquisitions person or really you're a cashier, whatever it is. Like think – maybe this goes right back to the bar and the pellet, but think about like what aspect of that appeals to you because like – again, going back to the, uh, the great Robert Evans, he realized never put his own money into a movie. 
Like right. he made a lot of money for himself and others, but he did that by realizing it's sort of like I can be great at blackjack on the computer. I, I can make $500 a night playing blackjack on the computer because I'm really good at it and I'm really – I'm on the computer with fake money. I am really great at employing basic strategy. Like I know what cards to play when it's, you just basically become a robot who gets free Heineken's well, virtual Heineken's, but in the casino, I'm a mess. Cause it might be the dollar table and I'm still screwing up. So I guess what I'm saying is like, if you're somebody like, I think a lot of people make the mistake of saying, I like money a lot. So I'm going to go do this money thing and they kind of leave it at that but that sets aside the part like my daughter collects bottle caps i collect comics and i think in some ways that's the same kind of impulse as somebody who wants to for example collect money like in your case you really like having those quarters in a box but but that gets me to the second point which is how do you like to spend your day i think people don't ask themselves that enough and and this is real fancy but i really believe this i've, I've seen We've seen people who go go through like all the things we talked about, becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, becoming all of these things, and it never completely occurred to them that while they were studying – let's look at it this way. First, you aspire to be an attorney, and so you watch attorney TV shows or maybe if you're really smart, you read books. So then what do you do? You go to law school, and yes, you study the law, but really <laughs> no, it, you're, you're – in, in, your, in your cosmology, uh, aspiring to be an attorney – begins by watching attorney tv you're shows. telling me you watch swat and didn't want to be on a swat team yeah okay you're right okay and so then okay, maybe well. you go to school for a pretty long time but you know what you are you're not a lawyer you're not a law student you're a student you've gotten good at being a student student and i'm referring here specifically to to one friend in particular and, and a couple other people then you i knew this woman who made it all the way into studying for the bar which is not easy it was not until she was in a study group studying for the bar that she realized how much she hated lawyers mm. and she did not like being around them. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this is long winded, but all I'm trying to say is that I think one reason a lot of people are unhappy, maybe because of the bar, maybe because of the pellet, but because they don't really think about what they like to do all day. Yeah. If you become a manager and you don't like going to pointless meetings, you have the wrong kind of job. If yeah. you love money, but don't like being around bankers, if you, you know, if you like the idea of making movies but can't get along with the crew, you picked the wrong job because you I forgot wanted, what you like to do and who you like to spend your time with. I wanted a job at a stock brokerage or at a bank that involved me going into a big Scrooge McDuck room <laughs> uh, behind a giant circular vault door and pouring money on my head. <laughs> did you ever see I the, wanted that did job. you ever see the taking of Pelham 123? Do you remember that? I, the reason, I the original one? With yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason when you said that, I was immediately taken back to the scene that is totally, if I remember this correctly, I, I, this could be an Oprah memory, but I have such a clear recollection, I would never want to spoil the end of the movie because it's a really good movie, but it was on a lot when I was a kid, and I know it's had a huge influence on like Tarantino and stuff, but like I just saw it all the time when I was a kid. It was just another one o'clock movie for me, but there's a scene at the end when Martin Balsam has his cut. And if memory serves, and Martin Balsam, I mean, he was a troglodyte. He's in his little tiny crappy room. He dumps his entire share of cash on the bed and starts rolling around in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that's kind of appealing. Not, and just, just because, like, even if you take that money away from me in, in a week, it would be kind of fun to get to roll around in it for a while. It's super appealing. And, you know, I, I, when, we were, when we were kids growing up, the trope of the heist movie, the bank robbery movie, or the, especially any movie where they were going to knock over Fort Knox. Where there's a, like and, a, it could also be stuff like the, um, you don't like the, uh, that one Robert Shaw movie I like, but the, uh, Force 10 from Navarone, right? You gotta, it's a kind of a heist movie, right? You gotta go out and you gotta go. Force 10 get from Navarone is maybe, it's maybe in the top four. But you don't like the Dirty Dozen. 
Uh, See, this is it's just not as good. Goes on the list. I'm sorry, heist movies. But, but the Force Ten from Navarone is in the top. It's definitely in the top four movies that uh, that informed my entire. That, that's Harrison Ford. Young life. Harrison Ford. It, it's the it's a, the classic film where there's a. There's like a, a British guy who's an explosives expert. Oh, you uh, love that. The uh, the, uh, the black guy is a hand to hand combat guy. You know, it's and they go on the a mission and they blow up a dam. It's so wonderful. I love movies like that. It makes me so happy. But any any movie that involved well and 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 to that end, any movie that involved a vault full of money and a British a, explosives a, expert, a, a guy a guy pushing a cart that had gold bars on it, or a room. <laughs> That was full, uh, a room that you were breaking into that was full of explosives or guns that you were stealing. I can't believe you don't read comics. Totally, totally appealing. In in any case, those were my, those, those, I I think I have spent my entire life trying to figure out how it is that I am going to be not just a bank robber, but a bank robber who is robbing banks to defeat the Nazis. Oh. Like that, I think is was really my job—a bank robber who's also fighting the Nazis. And I, I, there's a, there's like that's my missing limb. Hmm. 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 That's your that, that's by, by way of a duck. I just want to point out just because I'm quickly searching to just make sure I get these facts right. Force ten from Navarone. Yeah. Um, the taking of Pelham one two three. Yeah. And I think, yeah, from Russia with Love, all featuring Mr. Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. And, from, from and, and the Sting, and the Sting, where he gets, he's the on the other end of the heist. Yeah. He's in the Robert Sting. Shaw in the in from Russia with Love with blonde hair. Getting punched in the stomach by uh, that lady from uh, that uh, with the, the German composer's wife. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Kurt Weil. That's Kurt Weil's wife. Oh no, kidding. Mm-hmm. She was in a lot of his uh, productions. You know, there 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 was a movie uh, starring Frank Sinatra. Where they where they steal a train? Do you know the oh one von Ryan's Express? Von Ryan's Express, and if you watch von Ryan's Express, there the 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 German girl that they kidnap with the train. I'm listening. Who, who was the who was the mistress of the um of the ba- the German baddie? And then she becomes like obviously she falls in love with von Ryan or mm. something. She 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 turns the tables. This German girl was not German, she was Italian. And it ends up that she was the girl that did the dancing in the prison colon Ensenine Cusol video. So put that put that in your put that in your pipe and smoke it. Is that an exercise thing or Prison well, colon Ensenine Cusol? Have I never That has heard? nothing to do with Einstein and a new Bouton? No. Have I I've never I've never explained to you prison colon Ensenine I've got a card and a pencil and I don't even know what letters to make. <laughs> So is it, so is it there, an industrial band? No, no. There, there. So there was an Italian actor, um, and I'm going to find his name for you right now. Prison colon Ensign Cusel. <laughs> <laughs> There's an Italian actor named Adriano Celentano, and he had a uh, like a, a. He was one of those actors that was kind of the. He was the Marlon Brando of Italy or something like that. He was the somebody of Italy, famous actor. And he had a music career in the early 70s. And he wrote this song, Prison Colon Ensign Cusel, which is him as an Italian guy who doesn't speak English 
singing a song of nonsense lyrics that it, uh, that sound like what he imagines English sounds like. Oh. So he has an entire song where he's just singing in made up the way that we would go yeah, the, way, yeah the, the way we'd be like he writes an entire song in that style records it and it's a hit in italy is that like a novelty hit well yeah but but the, here's the thing huh. it's a killer song it is killer i'm sorry i just spent three minutes Can you give me a hand on the uh spelling so p-r-i-s-e-n Prison. C-O- oh, prison, pre, 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 prison colon ensign Kuzel. There it is. Prison colon ensign Kuzel. So watch this music video. The, the, there, there are two videos, but the, the one that you want is the black and white one. And, he, and they're, they're both recorded like off a of TV. They're terrible quality. But this tune got stuck in my head a couple of years ago. And I had to watch this. I had to watch this thing once a day. I watched it once a day for a year because the, the, the the backing track of the tune is kind of a like a crazy loop. It's got horns. It's it's got kind of proto fuzz distortion, and and the way his vocals kind of it, it's like a he, he in a way he invented rap because he kind of raps instead of sings. And I don't know. This track is amazing. Um, I listen to it still all the time. But the woman. In the video is the woman from Von Ryan's Express. Man. And I think those are the only two things she did that were that, that had any traction outside of Italy. And you're like a uh a Gene uh Shallot, a Gene uh Siskel. That's amazing. That's encyclopedic, John. Mm. Prison I so I know Ein is one or A. It's probably nonsense. It's probably nonsense, right? None of it means anything. It's just it's just it's just uh well, did I ever tell you, I, uh, when I first went to college, there was a, a Japanese kid that lived in the dorms, and he didn't speak English very And uh, one day we were sitting around drinking and smoking pot, and my, my friend Bob had this kind of moment of insight, and he said, he said to, the, to the exchange student, he was like, how do you imitate Americans in Japan? And the the kid didn't get it at first. He was like, huh? What do you mean? And so Bob said, well, like when we pretend to be Japanese, we're like, oh, I saw karate. <laughs> Hi-ya. <laughs> and you're looking for his hit. What's, what's yeah. ping pong for him? Yeah. And he was like, oh, I see. I see. And he stood up and he like kind of cocked his arms out at the side like he was going to, like he was on a, 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 he was dueling on a, old western town and he said hamburger hamburger bang bang <laughs> look at me i can have intercourse without hitting urine or panties look at me that's awesome chicago bang bang yeah. i love Hamb- that kind of stuff i love to hear like uh, poetics in different languages and we we must sound so like you never ever notice like russian of course you've noticed russian and german people like they could be they could be flirting and it sounds like they're about to have a fight russian people sound really mad when they're speaking Russian people are mad. Is that they're right? Just, they're just mad. We, they used a, to be in the, uh, when we used to go to the Y before we had a child and we, we could go places, we would go to the Y in the morning and I'd do a little bit of a workout and then I would go into the uh, sauna where everyone spits. And there would always be these two, you know, you know the way, the, especially a lot of Germans, right? You get this real, the real round and shiny 
and bulbous. Shiny, and these yeah. two Russian guys would, would talk in, like just short of yelling. They were six inches away from each other. Everybody's spitting and they would, they would yell at each other. I knew, had no idea what they were saying, but they were clearly friends. They, they kept coming back. Maybe they were, it was a long negotiation. I don't know. They're still, uh, the Russian people are mad. They are still very mad that Peter the Great cut off their sleeves. <laughs> they are, they're, they're just, they're mad about a lot of cut, things. I'm sorry. Why'd why he cut off their sleeves? Why did he cut off their sleeves? Is that a metaphor? No, he actually cut off their sleeves. <laughs> there was, but before, before Peter the Great modernized Russia, the fashion for centuries there was to have, it sounds ridiculous to say, <laughs> was to have really, really, really long sleeves <laughs> on your garments. <laughs> and uh, like really long. And Peter the Great uh, felt that this was not in keeping with the Russia that he wanted, you know, he wanted to emulate the court in France. He wanted, um, he wanted Russia to be like a European country instead of what he considered to be this kind of backward, like medieval country. And so he, uh. he mandated <laughs> in a very, in a very contentious decree that, that uh, that everyone uh, had to cut their sleeves off and have normal sleeves under lengths. under penalty of law. Yeah, have normal sleeves that ended at the at where your hand was. People hate stuff like that. And he made them shave their long beards. He cut their beards, and he cut their sleeves. How is that not the beginning of a revolution? Well, in fact, it was. It's it sowed Turns the seeds. Out. It sowed the seeds. Uh, of the of the re- the uh, the eventual revolution, and also I think why Russians in bathhouses are yelling at each other to this day. It it, it makes perfect sense. They're still upset. That stuff sticks with you, right? I mean, the the kind of thing that can, if your people have suffered an indignity in the past, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the thing. That's not the kind of thing that people let go of lightly. Yeah. Well, it's any kind of forced modernization. Well, the Jews are like- still still celebrating candles that uh, lamps that that stay lit. You yeah. know what I mean? Or, it was a long uh, time ago. Yeah, somebody I heard a crack somewhere. Somebody was saying that every Jewish holiday is about like bad news, you know, <laughs> about like something going wrong. It's, but this is a huge thing. I mean, you know what? We shouldn't get into politics. I, I, yeah, I, I well, love the, learning the Shiites, these things. The Shiites and the Sunnis are still super duper mad about uh, mad at each other, mad at each other to the point of wanting to kill each other because somebody. Somebody says that the real prophet is is the cousin of the guy, and the other people say no, the prophet is the mon- is the uncle of the guy. Right. And you, well, like, you'd have to change a lot of icons if somebody you know literally fetishes like religious icons. You'd have to change a lot of the architecture of churches if that were the case. Hmm. Well, you know, and I mean, the thing is, it's all it's all a little bit bananas to begin with, with all due respect. And so, I mean, when you when you try and introduce even what feels to us like a fairly trivial change, right? I mean, it's your religion. Right, but but I feel like I feel like the long sleeves thing. If Peter had just demonstrated that shorter sleeves were more efficient um, by like prancing around in short sleeves for a while, and I'm, we're not talking about short sleeves, we're talking uh-huh. about just less we, less long sleeves. Yeah, what, what, what we now consider conventionally it's like, long. Uh, Kennedy did not set out to kill the hat industry. Exactly. Clark Gable did not set out to kill the t-shirt industry, but they said, yeah. you know what? Let it begin with me. Let it begin with me. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and so you get this problem in in history where uh, somebody has too much power, and they're like, you know what? I'm just I'm drawing a line. 
no more sleeves. And that's when the problems start. Mm. That's when the problems begin, right? If Kennedy had said, I hereby outlaw the hat, <laughs> we would have every tea partier in the country would be wearing a hat right now. We would be a nation of people in hats. But no, Kennedy was just like, yeah, I don't need a hat. I'm cool. You can have a hat when you pry it off my cold, dead head. <laughs> have you seen, there's a, there's a great shot of Kennedy and Johnson walking across, walking in a, in a rainstorm across a, uh, across an airfield. And Kennedy doesn't have an overcoat on. He's just in his suit. And Johnson showed up like all the other guys with an overcoat. And he realized that he was going to look like, he was going to look like a pussy if he had this overcoat on. So he takes the overcoat off and he's carrying it in his, in his arms. And he's, then they're walking across this airfield and Johnson has this look on his face. Like, why aren't we, why aren't I wearing a coat? This is crazy. But he, he was savvy. He was savvy enough to know. Don't show up to a no coat party wearing a coat. <laughs> you know, Kennedy didn't, Kennedy didn't need a coat. I don't need a coat. Uh-huh. He's a very he's a very wise man. I would never have thought of Johnson. I mean, I know he's was extremely politically savvy and powerful, but it, so that for him though, you think you're guessing that was not something about about vanity and appearances in this in the sense of like people thinking he's fashionable. It would be because he didn't want to look like uh, some fruity dork who was afraid of rain. Well, it's like that scene in the movie MacArthur where he's you know it's during the war and he's reading fan mail. Or his assistant is reading a fan mail aloud to him from people back in the States. And they're saying, you know, they're sending him this worshipful mail. And then he reads a letter from a little kid who says, you know, General MacArthur, why, why are you always walking around carrying a bamboo cane? Do you have an infirmity? Are you lame? It was just an affectation. It was just an affectation. And, and everybody in the room, like the room gets quiet and everybody's looking at him because MacArthur had the cane, he had the corncob pipe, he had the glasses, Corrective he had lenses. The, gold, <laughs> the gold braid on his hat. Like the man had, had more affectations than Truman Capote. He had, a, he, he, had, he had a duffel bag full of like props. And he, he, was, he was like a sartorial carrot top. Yeah, ex- yeah, you're right. He was a prop comic, except he was the general of the army. And uh, of course, every- I'm wearing this toilet seat around my head. I'm the general asshole. He and everybody gets quiet because, oh my god, this kid just you know just said the emperor has no clothes. Basically, and right. MacArthur walks really slowly across the room. I mean, obviously, this is this is uh, Gregory Peck as MacArthur. I wasn't there to see the real MacArthur. But I have it on good authority from this movie that he walks slowly across the room and he throws his bamboo cane in the garbage can and everybody laughs. But it is true that from there was a there was a moment during the war when all of a sudden MacArthur no longer had his cane and you never saw it again. And it was, yeah, to to present the uh, the impression of of vigor. How important do you think that stuff is? And again, now speaking of another general I learned about from movies, like with Patton, you know, he seemed like when I was in military school, the guys that you would really respect in the administration were, were clearly people who had been in the military. And particularly this uh, Marine, not an ex-Marine, the, the Marine who ran our Naval Academy, he just looked like a million bucks. He had no reason to dress like that, but he looked 
great. I mean, he, he did not, of course, he didn't have a spot on him. His, his seams were impeccable. Do you think part of that is, I mean, obviously there's, there's a, a status part of it, but I wonder if part of it is also like, I'm out here like in the shit and I still look awesome. Like I'm getting stuff done, but you've got to respect me because I look great in this time of privation and violence. I still look awesome. Like, well, isn't that I, part think, of it? It absolutely is. And I think a lot of the, you know, Brooks brothers, if you, if you get in, really inside the whole Brooks brothers machine, you can find the place where Brooks Brothers still tailors uniforms for officers. Like they have a whole they have a whole section of their tailoring department that makes uniforms for naval officers and army officers who come from a certain background. And if you are, you know, if you are a scion of a of a prominent family and you join the navy, you don't just get issued a uniform. Oh, you're not going to get Pret-a-Porter. You're, you're going to go in and get a, a bespoke artisanal uniform. Exactly. You're going to have a uniform tailored just as all of your clothes have been tailored. And I think a lot of it is that, you know, I've told you that my dad refused to wear jeans because they were enlisted men clothes. And <laughs> Don't he, but did he call them dungarees? <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. He said, I'm a goddamn officer. <laughs> I wear khakis. I don't wear jeans. But, but, until very recently, it was true that the clothes made the man. You, you could tell by a person's tailoring where his station was in life. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, uh, it, it, people who had, as, as we, and, 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 and this was because you could not afford clothes like that unless you lived, unless you were a member of this strata. And sometime in the 60s, when people started to have disposable income, and you saw, you know, you saw first that, that guys were spending a lot of money on flashy clothes. I mean, I guess that started as far back as the 30s, but, you know, guys were wearing flashy clothes. But then Ralph Lauren was really the one that introduced the idea of clothes that looked like the clothes of people with money. And you could just go and buy these clothes now. You didn't have to, you didn't actually have to go to, J press or you didn't have to inherit these clothes from your father. You could go buy clothes that looked like you had money. And now we live in a world where like Seattle, there are no dress codes in any of the restaurants here because some of the richest people in the world live in Seattle and they dress like slobs. Mm -hmm. Like they dress Steve Ballmer. I don't, you know, I can't imagine he's just one of those guys where, you could put him in a $10,000 suit and it would look like he'd been sleeping in it. Like they're it still not, like he's in the essay. <laughs> they're not there. There, there are people here who will show up to the nicest restaurant in town in a fleece jacket and some dockers. And we are all expected to admire them mm-hmm. for their commitment to comfort or their commitment to their, what they consider to be their like street credibility they don't they don't have to dress up because they're so rich but what it you know what it's done is it's undermined one of the easiest ways you know and and intentionally and in a in a in a cool egalitarian american way the traditional ways that we told one another apart and could tell who was a you know who you would doff your hat to mm-hmm. are all gone and now if you see a guy walking down the street in a really really great suit Chances are he's a young guy who is spending his disposable income on clothes. It is, it's, 
it's or, or less, like or it reads as like a appearance in court. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. it's, when you show up and you're like a tech entrepreneur, on the one hand, it it makes yes, it makes you look like a person of the people because you're 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 dressed down. It, but in a weird way, it also telegraphs a lot of power. Like if you could be the one at the meeting, you know, wearing your Stan Smiths up on the table. Yeah, you know, it, it is power. It it is down to earth. Um, but it's a it's a power that is trading on like I am powerful enough to disrespect. The, right. N- n- just the so you code. know, none of you guys should do this. Yeah. Right. And and so so it is. You know, it is. It is actually the wrong kind of power. You know, the power of being of being able to disrespect the rules is an adolescent expression. And that's why you're mad at politicians. <laughs> it's why I'm mad at everybody. That's why I'm <laughs> mad at the entire world. This comes up a lot. It's it's very it's really disorienting to not have a way that we can know these things. Certainly, you and I. You know, given our own sartorial decisions, uh, probably benefit from the fact that we don't don't have to get dressed up. But one thing I think is kind of cool in New York, there aren't many things, but I think it's kind of cool that people still like dress up. I, I, I'm yeah. glad I don't have to do it, but I think it's neat that people still get dressed up to go out to dinner and stuff. Yeah. How else are you going to know that you're in the pretenders if you're not walking against a tide of guys in bowler hats and umbrellas <laughs> walking across the Thames? Like I bet, I bet the guys in the pretenders were like all the time thinking to themselves, "What the? F- who am I again?" And then, oh right, I'm in the pretenders because everybody else on this bridge is is wearing a suit. Mm. That's how the guys in Pink Floyd knew knew that they were in a band too. Mm-hmm. And now, now the only place you can find that is in is in New York City or Vienna. You know, the guys in Vienna dress pretty good. I believe sharp, that they're sharp dressers. It's a real closed town. Everything I know about uh, Vienna comes from um, one Falco song and the third man. (laughs) I like that music in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. A Falco song. (laughs) Vienna Calling. O-O-O. Vienna Calling. Every Falco song had O-O-O as part of the chorus. Come around. Commissars in town. O-O-O. Amadeus. You know what? I miss... West Berlin. Vin does. Re- Vin does. Can lie. You gonna bust a? You gonna bust a uh, angels uh, on me? What's that mean? Alexander Platz. Alexander Platz. The old man walks alone, and Colombo offers him coffees. What is that? Wings of Desire. I don't know that. Oh, of course you do. It's that movie everybody saw with the angels in the library and the the, the, the trapeze lady and uh, Colombo. You remember mm-hmm. that circa nineteen eighty seven? It's mm-hmm. about the about the wall. It's big, uh, big in German. Know, in, in 1987, I was already, I was already, really going from half rack of Schmidt to half rack of Schmidt. You don't get so many movies that way. So, do you ever seen the Hitler Rage videos where they got where Hitler's freaking out from that like pretty good movie, Last Days in the Bunker or whatever it's called? Oh yeah, yeah, I have seen that. So last that day. actor Bruno Ganz plays like a, plays an angel in it. It's 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 really good, but not nearly as good as you remember or I remember. This, this is the problem with this is the problem with uh, with me and culture. As soon as I left high school and became a dedicated drinking person from from nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety seven, like there there are huge holes in what I understand, what I know about popular culture mm-hmm. because I just did I, I didn't have any money and I was not living I was subterranean. I wasn't living above ground. So Well if and if, if you were in a bar, it wasn't to watch friends. No, or I would never be in a bar where they had TVs. You know, they didn't have TVs in the bars that I drank in. I hate all the TVs. 
but I, I feel but that way you, about college where there's so much stuff that like is now so much part like your uh, your buddy the child actor. I uh, I Star Trek New Generation started and I. I I've never been a Star Trek fan. I don't have anything against Star Trek, but like everybody I know that's just a little bit younger than me, that was a real touchstone for them. Maybe not mm. quite as much as Star Wars was for me, but you know, they know so much, you know, there's something you miss like age wise. I just miss transformers. I was more of a micronauts guy. Yeah. And, micronauts, of course. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. You got that Baron, uh, not Baron Zemo. That's from the Avengers, but this, uh, the big, remember the big, uh, black armored guy. I still have, I still have a little handful. Those of were really well made. Oh. The, yeah, the metal good. ones were really well made, but no, I had the, you had these latent. I think everybody has these latent periods, and I was really in a bubble in a way that I am very happy about in college. I'm glad that I was removed from uh, you know even hearing stuff on the radio when I was in college. It was nice to have a break from that. Yeah, yeah, because when you're in high school, you are just you're so hyper aware of everything, every new cultural thing, mm-hmm. and right about the right about when Peter Gabriel's So came out. I just went off the reservation. I so I re- heavily associate that with starting college. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I and I I just uh I came back I came back to the world sometime in 1997. You like, time oh, traveled. You came you came forward and you said, "Peter Gabriel, he's a good-looking guy." And you go, no, "You know what, dude? He's bald and has a super creepy beard now." Yeah, and walks walks like with a limp and wears a uh, an ankle-length leather trench coat. Or am I confusing him with Rob Halford? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Peter Gabriel riding on a stage on a motorcycle very awkwardly. I would love to see a collaboration between Rob Halford and Peter Gabriel. <gasps> huh. With with like Moby does the music. Okay, I was going to say you know, I know Peter Gabriel plays flute. Uh-huh. And I know Rob Halford plays a kind of flute. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's like a bell. The bells are just ringing in the town. Ah, fuck it, we're done here. 